Well, tonight, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 7, 2 Corinthians chapter number 7, uh, we're going to be preaching on this verse-by-verse study as we've been working through the book of 2 Corinthians, and when you find your place, we're going to read verse 1 down to verse number 4. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, the two longest letters that he wrote in the New Testament dealing with a church that had uh, some problems. Anybody ever deal with some people that cause you problems in life? Uh, anybody, anybody have stress because of those people? Uh, anybody have sorrow because of certain people in life? Uh, Paul was no stranger. The great apostle was no stranger to those things. And he is dealing with a church that broke his heart in so many ways, and he is confronting them on some issues that we're going to see uh, tonight and next week. But he says in verse number one, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you. Uh, For I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and to live with you. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Father, again, your word is our delight. We gather because Christ is worthy of our time. We long to know you more. Father, we know what the world offers, and it's nothing compared to what you have. And so we choose Christ. We long to know you more. I pray that you would give us an understanding of this truth tonight as we uh, examine the, the, the reality of conflict that we deal with in our own hearts, in our own lives because of sin. But I pray that we would go to battle with that sin so that we might have the peace, comfort, and joy of God in us. I pray that you would bless tonight if anyone doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that tonight that they might come to know you. We ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Man, you may be seated. Well, here in 2 Corinthians um, 7, Paul is concluding his thoughts that he was um, speaking about in chapter number 6. It's important to know that page numbers and verses are not inspired by God. So so chapter 7, verse 1, really isn't the best place really to have a page break, but that's where it lands. And it's coming actually to a concluding thought from chapter number 6. In chapter 6, Paul was talking about what the Christian world, uh, or the Christian, his relationship to the world, the Christian is not to be yoked to the world. Uh, In verse 14, he says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, back in chapter 6, verse 14. And then he launches into five questions to show why we should not be yoked to uh, the world. And uh, being yoked, if, if you think back to the, uh, what Carl told us about the Charles Ingalls days, um, did you ever learn who Charles Ingalls was? Yes, Patrick. Okay, okay, no. Last, last Wednesday I said, raise your hand if you don't know who Charles Ingalls is, and he raised his hand up, how is that possible? How is that possible? So we prayed for him, he got that right, and now we can move on with the service this evening. So... Um, but, but in those days, they would have oxen, uh, mules even, and they would, they would have a wooden device that went over both animals that, that locked them together. It, it joined them so that two would become like one. 
and, and this harness uh, is what Paul is talking about. That we are not to harness ourselves, to connect ourselves in a binding way to relationships in the world that, that restrain us and restrict us. And, and he launches into five questions to show why you shouldn't do that. And in chapter 6, notice in verse 14, he goes on to say, after he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he said, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Uh, what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Belial is another word for Satan to the Jews. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel or an unbeliever? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them, walk in them, and be their God, and they shall be my people. So after he asks these questions, as we saw last Wednesday, he concludes them in verse 17 by saying, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. So don't yoke yourself, but rather be separate and touch not the unclean thing. And he said, I'll receive you and I'll be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And so here the great invitation has been given by our Creator to separate from the world, to not yoke ourselves to the world. Now, we saw last Wednesday that this not yoking ourselves to the world doesn't mean isolation from the world. We are not to uh, separate in the sense that we don't have anything to do with people in the world or the world itself. The Bible tells us we are in the world, but not to be of the world. Uh, we are to go into the world to evangelize. And so we talked about yoking ourselves to the world really carried two concepts. First, a yoke would refer to something that was not easily broken. Uh, it was like a permanent binding. So, so don't get into any relationship that permanently binds you. That's why you should never marry an unbeliever. Christians are, are because that would yoke you with an unbeliever. And the Bible tells us not to do that. Uh, Paul talks about that also in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, uh, that you should only marry people in the Lord. So if you're not to marry an unbeliever, who should you not date? Yeah, you shouldn't date an unbeliever. So if you're, should you let your children date unbelievers? Is it important to make sure that you set before them they in priority to, uh, to well, well, I want my kids to be happy. Uh, better that they're holy than happy. Better that they, they, they line themselves up with truth. And uh, as a pastor for 20 years, I've counseled people who've been in unequally yoked relationships. And I can tell you the heartache because who you love most, they do not love. Who you want to serve, they don't want to serve. You want to give your time and energy and, and, and life into the one who gave his life for you, and they are not about that, and it creates a great tension. And so uh, second mark of a yoke we talked about was someone who constrains you. If you're yoked in, in, as an oxen, uh, you, the, you become one, like you, you go where they want to go. Uh, it yokes you, it binds you together, and Jesus is to be our Lord. We're not to be in some relationship that causes us to be uh, forced into doing things that would not please the Lord. So, uh, so again, don't isolate from the world, but have biblical separation. Uh, now in chapter 7, and, and I would say this, I, I went to public schools, I, I, um, and I personally uh, enjoyed the opportunity to go to public school to evangelize. There were some things I, I know that public schools have... have uh, digressed over the years. Uh, some We have some great teachers that are part of our church, even principals, part of Lighthouse, and I praise God for, for Christians that are in that environment. Uh, amen. What a blessing. We need to pray for them. Um, but when you start standing up and living for Jesus, uh, you don't. It, it's, it's, it's not you that will want to separate from them so much as they won't want to be around you. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I quit being invited to the parties, man. I was like... <laughs> It don't matter if I was a captain on a team or not, man. They're like, yeah, we ain't going to invite Josh. He's going to ruin the party. He'll come with this Jesus stuff, man. 
you know, the whole party gets ruined. So uh, just you, you take a stand at work. You, you, you share Christ. It's not, not being obnoxious, not being in people's face. You're not at work to evangelize. You're work there to work. But, but Christ should be so evident in your life that it would just fumigate off, it would, it would come off of you in your life, in your work ethic, and in your, uh, in your lips. And so, uh, so, so there needs to be a biblical separation, and, and that's what that would refer to. Uh, now in chapter 7, Paul launches into confronting sin in two different places. I thought I could get through this in one sermon, but I found myself, I can't, I was going to preach the whole chapter tonight, and I thought I didn't want to do that to you. I had mercy upon you. Okay. I thought I want to be gracious to this dear flock of God's people. And uh, so we're going to break this down in at least two sermons. Uh, so we're just going to go through like one verse tonight. Is that okay? Is that okay? One verse. Like, that doesn't bring any comfort either, preacher. We know what can happen with just one verse. So uh, next week we'll go uh, a little bit longer, but not longer in length, just more verses covered. Uh, and I'm actually super excited. I really wanted to preach next week's sermon tonight, but I'm so excited about preaching tonight that I thought I, I thought I just there's too much there to give it to you. In a, in a, in a just it's going to be a part one and part two. All right, so come. It's, it's like watching Charles Ingalls. They would always to be continued. So that's how we're going to, you know, Carl can tell you all about that. You know, Carl. So now now. Here, in, in, in Paul's talking about dealing with sin in two different places. The first is dealing with sin in our own life. And uh, in the second place is dealing with sin in other people's lives. And so we live in a world where we confront sin internally and we confront sin externally. And we're going to be talking about that over the next couple of weeks. The, now, the result of biblically dealing with sin in our life and biblically dealing with sin in other people is the theme of joy and comfort that runs through this chapter. In chapter 7, there are six times that Paul talks about being comforted. Six times he talks about rejoicing or being overcome with joy. And that's the, that's the fruit of working through that. Anybody here, and you know what this is like, you had something that held you in bondage and, and you finally got through that, you repented, you gave it up, and such a comfort, a joy, a peace, and relief that came from the exhaustion that sin had upon your life. And you ever had that relationship where there was tension, there was anxiety, there was pain, and, and, and some sin had been committed, but, but you went and you worked through that in a biblical way, in a loving way, in a gracious way, in a clear way, and it created reconciliation, and it brought such peace and joy. You said, praise God, uh, there's no longer the tension, there's no longer the anger, there's no longer the animosity. And, and, and that's what we find in chapter 7. But... but but to get to that place of comfort and joy, we've got to go through some conflict. There, there is the discomfort of dealing with things. And, and I'm, I fear that we're living in a day when people don't want to deal with sin internally and they don't want to deal with sin externally. Uh, we, we're in such a gadget age. You know, I'm just going to text them. Has anybody ever found, this is probably somewhat of an honest question, but... Um, that you've ever been able to work through a big conflict just through texting? Raise your hand if you've ever been able to do Raise your hand if you found it usually makes it worse. Look around. That Sometimes I'll counsel with couples. And I'm like, so how you guys been conversing? They're like, man, just read this text. I'm like, I'm not reading your stupid text. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I ain't going to read it. Why'd you type it anyway? Yeah, I don't want to read it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, seriously, like, they'll be sitting in the room. They're like, no, just read this passage. And they'll, and they'll like, want to scroll. I'm like, I don't want to read all that. 
Like, we're both here now. But you need to, you know, I'm like, all right, come on now. So, don't, so, so we live in this age where we don't want to deal with internally. We don't, we don't, sometimes even people, listen, if older folks are doing that now, what do you think the younger folks are struggling with? Right? I mean, there was a day when you used to pick up a phone and call somebody. I remember when texting came out back in my day. I remember when my, my little brother was all about, man, you got to get these phones, you got to text. I was like, you're, you're so goofy, man. I said, nobody's ever going to text. I was like, why don't you just talk? Why don't you just call him? A couple years later, I'm like, hey, Jared. He's like the office over from me. I'm like texting. <laughs> you know. So, so tonight I want to look at um, confronting sin internally. This is a big deal. This is a, it's a big, big issue because all of us deal with sin. All of us deal with ourself. Every day we, we wake up, entropy not only affects the external life, but it infects our bodies. And, and entropy is really, in a spiritual sense, uh, real as well. We are, we are if, if you are not actively seeking Christ to grow, uh, your spiritual life doesn't stay plateaued. Anybody know, know what I'm talking about? You will be on a natural decline. So your spiritual life will be on a natural decline unless you put positive energy into it. So the law of entropy, second law of thermodynamics, lets us know that everything is wearing down unless you put positive energy into it. Uh, entropy is what your house looks like if you do nothing to it for a day or two, right? Uh, it wears down. Kids have destroyed it. Entropy is what you look like in the morning after going to bed. So uh, you got to put some effort into that thing to, you know, that body to improve that look. So, so our spiritual life is the same way. Now, uh, I want to start off by looking at the call of God to eternal comfort and joy. The call of God to eternal comfort and joy. We live in a world that seems to ever be increasing stress. Uh, pressures seem to rise. We have immorality. We have financial issues. We've got economic issues. We have um, societal problems. People have pressure at home, at work. I pray that when you come to church that this will be a place where you get some relief. Uh, I really do pray that when you come to Lighthouse that, that you feel like, man, this is just, I feel like it's a safe place. I feel like mentally, spiritually, I feel like socially, I feel like this is a place I can be loved, welcomed, that people care, that people want to shake my hand, that they look me in the face, give me a hug, uh, that, that they care about me. A couple weeks ago I had a dear lady who said, you know, uh, so much stress in life, so much angst in life, so many things going on in my life, she said, and, and this is the one place I come where I feel like the peace of God just comes over me every time I come here, and I'm just so thankful. And, and so just know that, know that, and, and, and be, that, be that warm smile, be that gracious person. Um, we're, not, we're not just here to get, we're here to give. We're here to give handshakes, we're here to show people we care about, and we're here to ask people, how are you doing, not as a byword for hi, but as an actual, how are you doing? You know what I'm talking about? So, so take time for people. Um, God wants your life to be filled with peace, friend. He wants you to have comfort and joy. He does. Uh, he doesn't want you to be filled with turmoil, heartache, stress, worry, anxiety, and worldly fear. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, Paul launches this book by telling us in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort, who comforted us, in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. So, so God is a comforting God. And six times this chapter, Paul speaks of the incredible comfort 
and joy that God brought him in verse 4, verse 6, 7, 9, 13, and 16. So not only does God bring comfort, but he brings transcendent joy. It's joy that the world doesn't get. We, we serve a God who has graciously chosen to love us. And he's offering to us himself. We get God is the gift. This is Psalm 1611, right? That in his presence is fullness of joy. His right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God has created man with this capacity called joy. We're able to experience this sensation on the inside. That, and, and joy is, is not happiness. Joy is a deep-seated confidence that even when you're in the midst of trial, that the end will be fantastic. That, that you know that God is sovereign. It is Sovereignty is the peace that, that you rest upon. It is the pillow for your head in the time of trouble. Joy is a gift of God. You're, you don't receive it from the world. The world can't sell you joy. All the world can give is happiness based on happenings. So as long as things happen to go well and you knock on enough wood and you rub enough rabbit's feet, maybe things will go well. I always find it so obnoxious when Christians are like, you know, I really, man, I really hope and I'm thinking, are you serious? That's so embarrassing. I mean, I mean, can you imagine like, hey, 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 Lord, he just knocked on some wood down there. I know it's not in the Bible, but I'm sure that you could step in and like really help his luck out some. I mean, what kind of God do we serve? This is ridiculous, isn't it? Don't walk under a ladder. Don't see a black cat. I know it's coming into October. We, we, we live in a, we live in a, a world that, that bases things on luck and chance. We don't live like that, do we? I mean, I mean we, we live in a world that uh, we can have joy in the midst of, of even trial and adversity. Uh, joy is a gift. It's not based upon the world. It's based on God. Joy is a vertical gift, not a horizontal gift. Therefore, joy is not temporary because joy is based on God. And since God doesn't change, our joy doesn't change. The problem is when we lose our joy, it's not God that moved. It's us. We, we've, we've, we've looked somewhere else to sustain that. We bought a lie. The world sold us something intellectually, physically, thoughts. And we, we grabbed that and we thought, that's going to be the place of comfort. That's really going to give me joy. That's going to be, give me really peace. You know why people smoke themselves to death or drink themselves or, or, or any other kind of addictions or pill themselves? You know why they do that? Because they think that's going to give them the peace they're looking for. That's going to sustain them. And God says, you're just... You, you're, you're, you, you, you just keep lining up your happenings, trying to dictate your happenings. Jesus declares he desires for us to have full joy. John 15, 11, he says these things. And this is the day before Jesus dies. He says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might be, remain in you and your joy might be what? How much joy do you think Christ has? And if he gave us his joy, how much joy do you think we could have? And it sustains. It never goes down. And that's why Galatians 5.22, what's the fruit of the Spirit? fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Uh, it's all of the gifts that the world doesn't know how to give. 
Joy is not destroyed through trials. Jesus said, blessed are you when, you, when men revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice, be exceeding glad. Uh, Paul sang while he was in a prison cell. So joy is a gift from God. Comfort is a gift from God. And, and that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, he says, having therefore these promises, having these promises, what promises? It's the promises he just spoke about in verse 16 through 18. In verse 16, God says, I will dwell with you. You, be, you belong to me. You're my child. I'm going to dwell with you. Verse 16, I will walk with you. I will be your God. You'll be my people. Verse 17, I will receive you. Verse 18, he said, I'll be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Anybody want God to be your father? That, that he would take care of you? And so the reward is not the gifts of God. The reward is God himself. We're not going to get to heaven and say, you know, I want to see how wonderful and beautiful heaven is. And I want to see how, how wonderful the, the, the reward or the, the gifts of it. No, we're going to say, I want to see God. We're going to see Christ. He's going to be the chief treasure. Some have the false notion or idea that God wants to make our life miserable, difficult, hard. The hardships of life are because God's against you. He's hurting you. He's wanting to mess your life up. As though God authors your misery. You know, that is a lie from Satan. Satan has used sin to bring destruction into the world. And it only brings sorrow and death. God is the one who delivers us from sin. He doesn't want to destroy you, but to save you. Stop listening to those lies. He is holding you in bondage with these kind of lies. John 10, 10, the Bible says, the thief talking of Satan comes not but for to steal, to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, but I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. And so people ask questions like this, but if God is all-powerful, why does he let bad things happen? Why does, he let, why does he let evil in the world? Why does he let pain and suffering, all, the, all of that? Listen, God's power has not kept man from having a free will. God's power, his sovereign, omnipotent power, did not restrain man's volition. If his power kept all evil from happening... He would keep all rape, all murder, all molestations. We would say, obviously, God would stop all of that. But he wouldn't stop there, would he? If God were to stop evil, not only would he stop all of those horrific things, but he would also have to stop lying because he hates lying. He hates lying. He hates dishonoring parents. He would have to stop that, too. He would have to stop lust and covetousness and greed. He would have to stop every evil inside of our hearts today. So when people say, how could God allow, if he were to stop anything, he would have to stop everything. That's how holy he is. But God has chosen to give men freedom. And inside of freedom, there is consequence. That's why we don't let little children have a lot of freedom. Because they don't understand the consequence. God has given man the freedom, the right to choose, to believe, to reject, to deny, or to accept sin, salvation. God's power provides salvation. He can deliver us from destruction. He is so gracious that he took destruction upon himself to deliver us from it. He took misery to bring us out of misery. Listen, in your life you will never experience greater joy, contentment, and peace than when you're right with God. Remember the day you got saved? Remember the day you submitted your life to God? You got off the driver's seat. You stopped thinking it was all about you and you realized it's all about him. 
Remember when you came to the end of yourself and you became to the beginning of Christ? Do you remember when you fully surrendered to him and you said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And you went to bed that night with such peace and joy because you experienced the fruits of the Spirit. You experienced the conflict that led you to joy. But it's a conflict, isn't it? And that brings me to the second point, the conflict with the inward sin. So God is here offering us himself the the fountain of life, the fountain of joy and peace and comfort, yet we have this conflict. And so Paul calls the Corinthians to separate themselves from yoking to the world's relationships. And notice in verse 1, he says, dearly beloved. This is a um, term of endearment. He loved the people at Corinth. He says, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. You know, salvation is the work of God. We cannot produce righteousness. But do you know when you get saved, you can do righteous things? There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Salvifically, yes, none. What I mean by that is we can produce no good works for salvation. But it doesn't mean when you get saved, you can't produce good works. Because you can. When you get saved, you are called to do good works. Matthew 5, 16, right? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your... And who would they glorify? Because they like, hey, no, they know it ain't about you. You didn't do that, right? John 15, 8, Jesus said, My Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Colossians 1, 10, being fruitful in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that you may abound in every good work. Uh, Titus 3, 1, 8, 14, on and on. The New Testament talks about producing good work. Now, now the problem is when you get saved, you, your spirit comes to life and you still live in this body of flesh. And the flesh desires things that are sinful and the spirit's like do what's right. And there's this war that rages. That's why Ephesians 5, 16 and 17 says, walk in the spirit. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusteth. And that, that's the idea of war warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary one to another. So there's a battle that rages. Anybody feel that battle go on in your life uh, on a daily basis? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's real, isn't it? Now, God cleanses us at salvation. That's called justification. God declares us righteous. He cleanses us. But God has called us to live a sanctified life, a life set apart to him, that we would, we would live practically what we are positionally. We are clean, righteous, and pure in God's eyes. So live like you eternally are in God's eyes. He has justified you. He has purified you. He's made you as clean as Christ. Now be holy like God is holy. Be practically what you are positionally. So there is also a cleansing of practical sin that involves us choosing to do what's right. We are to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of sin in our flesh and spirit. Warren Wiersbe said, God will not do for us what we must do for ourselves. Only we can put out of our lives those things that defile us and we know what they are. That's why Isaiah 1.16 says this, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doing from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. There, there, there needs to be a a putting off of the old man, a stopping of sin. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us to confess our sins. Friend, one thing that will make your life miserable in its sin. Sin will make your life miserable. And why is sin so devastating? 
For us to sin is to choose to walk away from God. For us to sin is to go in the opposite direction of the Lord. It's to say no to God and yes to sin. It's to tell God we love the world more than we love you, God. It's to love the creation over the creator. It is to choose death over life, the slums over the Savior. To sin is to douse our heart with cold water. It's to put God's best in our life down so we can pick up the world's sin. To sin is to rip the steering wheel out of God's hands so that we can sit in the driver's seat and drive recklessly. It is to live like a citizen of hell while we're a citizen of heaven. And any Christian who chooses to sin, once confronted with their sin, who holds on to it, will always be a lukewarm Christian. They will remain a powerless Christian, ineffective for God, and you will lose joy and peace and comfort, and you will keep chasing the next thing to find peace in the world, and you will be miserable. And you should be miserable. Because if you're in darkness, walking in the opposite direction of the truth, what joy would be found there? So if you're saved, you know what it's like to feel the way of sin. We all do. To say something that was sinful, to act in a sinful way. To be captured back into the slums. To do again what we begged and pleaded with God to forgive us that we would never do again. Sometimes a Christian who sins thinks, I might as well throw in the towel. But you know, that's a lie. The Christian life is a battle and you never find God giving up on a sinner in the Bible who had faith in him. Perhaps today you have known sin in your life. You need to know that God still loves you. You're precious to him. The Bible says he has not dealt with us after our sins. He's not rewarded us according to our iniquities. I would encourage you to grab a hold of Psalms 103 and love it. Read Psalm 103 and embrace it on your knees. Plead with God, the merciful God, who has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Turn with me to Psalms 32. Psalms 32. There are some psalms that... Are places of refuge for the soul. And Psalm 32 is married to Psalm 51, based on 1 Thessalonians, 1 Samuel chapter 12. David writes Psalms 32 in response to his tragic sin with Bathsheba that brought about the murder of Uriah. David had gone down the deceptive road of sin. He thought it would satisfy, and he came back destitute of joy and peace. His soul was bankrupted by the deceitfulness of sin. Psalms 32 is David's response to his great sin. Having gone down the road of sin, he traveled the road of repentance. And he writes to tell about his journey. In verse 1, he begins with these words. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and whose spirit there is no guile. Among the Jews, they had prophets who would give what were known as oracles of weal and oracles of woe. They were prophetic announcements or divine pronouncements of blessing and divine pronouncements of cursing. The oracle of weal would be 
like our kindred to the word well-being, like blessed, good, happy, divine blessing on the person that does this. This is Jesus' Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 through 8, the eight Beatitudes he lays out. What's he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Divine blessing upon the person that does this. And then there was an oracle of woe. An oracle of woe was a divine pronouncement of judgment. That's why when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, what would he say to the Pharisees? He would say, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees. Even in the book of Revelation, what's it say? These are the woe judgments. One woe is passed and two more woes. Those were divine pronouncements of judgment upon people. Here you find David as a prophet of God pronouncing divine blessing upon those who have been forgiven. Blessed, oh, how blessed is the man. It could be equivalent to the word how happy, how blessed, how wonderfully joyful that man is. Blessed is the man who has been forgiven. And then verse 3 and 4, he transitions. He begins to describe the weight and the curse of sin. Matthew Henry was right when he said sin is the cause of our misery. He says in verse number 3, when I kept silence. What happens when people sin? Do they usually sin in the middle of the day or the middle of the night? Try to cover it up. He said, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. The vitality of his life was drying up. We got some beautiful mums out front, don't we? We have a dear family in the church that grows those and such a blessing. And uh, But boy, you got to water mums. The staff love that. Boy, because if you don't water the mums, they get dried up quick. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You had a beautiful mum about two days later. It's like, boy, that, that thing is dying out there. That thing been in some sin or what? And, and what, what David is talking about here, he said, I kept silence when I did not get right with God about this. My, I, was, I was drying up on the inside. Look what he says in verse 4. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture has turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Sunday I made reference to John Bunyan. He went to jail for 20 years for preaching. While in prison he wrote the second greatest, most read English book in history, Pilgrim's Progress. In the very first paragraph, on the first page of Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan pins these lines as he pictures the unforgiven sinner who reads God's words and he sees his sin. Listen to what Bunyan writes. He says, as I walked through the wilderness of this world, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, referring to the word of God and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able no longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? I think it's a grace of God that keeps us from seeing how wretched our sin really is. 
Anybody ever feel beat down by your sin? Feel like, man, I'm just a mess. It's a gentle grace of God that doesn't let us see how absolutely wretched we really are. I think in heaven one day we're going to be like, oh. oh. I mean, don't we do that to ourselves now? Anybody ever say this? Well, if I could go back and talk to myself when I was a teenager. Right? When we get to heaven, we're going to be like, oh. Man, if I could. I had no idea. And I think we're going to fall down before Christ and say, Lord, I had no idea. I did not understand it. I, I, I did not know. Psalms 38.4 says, My iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. I think sometimes we need to sit and ponder the grace of God. How great is our sin? Just look how great the payment was. The cost was infinite. Infinite. And he says, my moisture's turned into the drought of summer. I, I am dying. God, your hand was crushing me. And you know, it's, it's, it's a grace of God that brings conviction. Hebrews 12, 6 says, for whom the Lord love, he loves, he chastens. That word is the idea of being disciplined and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. I remember as a young, young man having... Sin got in a hold of my life at one point when I was a young guy, and I, I was so broken, and I remember just weeping because I felt like it was just God letting me know how much He loved me to crush me. Just know the conviction of your life is God saying, I love you enough to pull you back to myself. I love you too much to just let you go. You're sitting in here tonight because there is a hand bigger than you holding you. He's holding you. He's, you're gripped. We wouldn't be here. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Like, there's no way we would be here. Some of you guys are like, you don't even know how far from here I would have been. And I think we're going to get to heaven and fall before him over and over and say, God, you held me. How could you even have touched me? I was a leper. I was so defiled by sin and you loved me enough. And, and you took my leprosy. And so the blessed man understands this. There, there is a weight of sin. There is a conflict. This is real. And, and, and so David then transitions into the path of forgiveness in, in verse 5. One of the greatest verses in the Bible. He says in verse number 5, notice the phrase, I, what's the next word? Acknowledge, what's the next word? My, what's the next word? Yeah, so all of those are big words, aren't they? It's not my wife acknowledge my sin. It's not my husband acknowledge my sin. It's not my neighbor. It's not, it's I did it. And then, I, then, then the word acknowledged, is that a big word? Has anybody ever struggled taking accountability for your sin? You know what we like to do? We like to play the victim card. And, and, and notice it's, it's my sin. So the first step for people is to acknowledge sin. And notice it's sin, it's not a mistake. You know, I've I, I made some mistakes. 
David said, no, I acknowledge my sin. Um, and to acknowledge is to accept the wrong. It's not to cast blame. It's, it's, it's to say, I'm a criminal before God. I have wronged God. We live in a day when we have the Adam and Eve syndrome, don't we? Adam, what did you do? like, <laughs> what are you talking about, Lord? It is the woman that, by the way, that you gave me. There is a direct line right here. I am just a, I am a victim of circumstance. When, 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 when God says, what have you done? We, we always like to shift the blame, don't we? Well, the only reason I said that was because she, oh, okay. You know, I think you're going to stand before God one day and he's going to treat you totally different than he did Adam. I think he's going to say, you know what? I understand. You know, she's a mess. Is that what he's going to, you think he's going to do that? No, you, I, I don't know how you put up with her all these years. Wives, <laughs> you, you think, you know, you know I mean, look at this guy. I mean, obviously you had the right to behave like that to him. I mean, do you think teens, the parents, parents, the neighbors and all of that? No, no, no. You know, pride will never admit it's wrong, ever. You know when somebody's struggling with pride, if they've gone more than a month or two without saying, I'm sorry. If the words, I'm sorry, have not uttered out of your mouth in the last couple months, there is a problem with pride in your heart. Because either you think you're Jesus, or you think you're Jesus. <laughs> right? Because if you've, if you've wronged, then you would say, I'm sorry, Lord. Right? Well, God's forgiven me of my sin. Well, you need to be sorry for your sins every day. Not for salvation, but if you've sinned, you need to get on your face in 1 John 1, 9. The problem, pride never admits. It, it's, 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 it's the enemy of repentance. The, you know, the first thing a mechanic does is a diagnostic process. They, they check it for problems. Once there's a problem, then they can... Fix it. So you have to acknowledge it. And, and step number two is, is the next step. He says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquities have I not hid. It's all out in the open. Getting real with God time. You know, Psalm 51, 6, David said, the parallel account of Psalm 32, he says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. You know, the broken part of the sinner, and, and we've seen this, I know um, some of you folks in here, I know, uh, have ministered to different people, from Leslie to, to, to folks all across this room, Phil, and, and, and they, all these, when, when, you get, when you deal with somebody, you know they've, they've gotten it, when they stop defending their sin and they say, you know what, this is exactly what I did wrong. And they stop playing games, and they stop deferring blame, they stop, they, they just become bone deep honest it's just this is what it is and 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 they get real and and until you get real on the inside you're just gonna gonna carry it around because pride pride and repentance do not coexist david was slain by god pride was slain david's pride was slain by god and it was it was the crushing weight of that. I mean, if it wasn't for God's grace, we would read a Psalms 32 about the Apostle Paul. Anybody thankful Paul didn't fall into Psalms 32 type of situation? Maybe that thorn in the flesh kept his pride from swelling up to getting him into this situation. 
Psalms 30, 139, 23, and 4, David said, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in, in me, search me on the inside. Have you come to the place where you no longer want to hide your sin? You're just done with hiding anything. What in your life do you know you need to repent of tonight? You know that God would not be pleased with. You know that God's... Sometimes people say, well, God understands. You know, we're just human. You know, he understands. What sins have you allowed to come in your life? Sin can creep in so easily. Covetousness, unthankfulness, wastefulness in life. I, my, let, let me say this. My heart has been burdened over the lack of like Bible reading that Christians do. I think it's a travesty. I think it is a grave sin. I think it, when the Bible says study to show yourself approved unto God, and you have Christians that have been saved for years and they can't quote the first verse, they can't tell people answers from the Bible, you, you, have, you have wasted time. What are you doing with your time? I would delete social media immediately. I would delete it. I would rid my life and plead with God to forgive me for wasting the one life that I have. And there is no repeats. I, I, I'm not going back. I can't get it back. Once you live, it's done, it's over. Find the one great thing that matters in life and give yourself to it. I'm, I'm like rambling in my mind thinking as we go into the new year, God, is there something we could do to get Christians in the Bible, like a back to the Bible theme or something? It, 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 it sorrows my heart. I was talking to a missionary yesterday. I was in a meeting in Canton this week, and, and he's over in Cuba, and they're seeing revival breaking out in Cuba. Is that amazing? Incredible. He was just there last week. 17 young men surrendered to the ministry. Baptized seven people last Sunday. He's just, I said, is it hard to come back to the States and minister? He said, it's very hard. He said, they're so hungry. Hide nothing, thirdly. And then he says this, and I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. Just because you realize what you're doing is wrong doesn't, doesn't get you to forgiveness. <laughs> Right? Well, I, I know what I'm doing is wrong. You, you think God's going to forgive you just because you know it's wrong? <laughs> There's a whole lot in our life we know is wrong. Amen? As Christians, we don't confess our sin for salvation, but we do to get right with God in, relationship, in, our, in our fellowship. Your relationship's based on God in salvation, but your fellowship can be broken. I'm my father's child by the blood we're related but my fellowship with my father can be broken because I could be disobedient when I was growing up to my father. And so Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaken it shall have mercy. Are you sorry for your sin? Psalm 38, 18, David said, I will declare my iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. And godly sorrow produces true repentance. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 Paul says, because Paul had to write a strong letter. We're going to look at this stuff next Wednesday, but um, he wrote a severe letter to the church at Corinth. I mean, like, like uh, sometimes pastors get letters, and he would send letters. And, uh, and it was so heavy that Paul was like, it like bothered Paul how hard he was on them. You've probably experienced this. I have, where, where you're like, man, maybe I was too hard on that situation. 
hey, maybe I should have worded that a different way. Man, I feel like I, maybe, you know, we, we can do that with our kids sometimes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're like, yeah, you kind of double guess, second guess yourself. Paul's doing that. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 7, 8, says, For though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. He's like, I don't repent that I did it, but man, I did repent. I was like burdened over what I did in writing you such a strong letter. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were for a season. But he goes on in verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner. I can't tell you, there's been a lot of times where um, over the years where I've corrected my children, and I'm like, man, I just, you know, I, I, you know, sometimes you just want to be gracious with them, but you're like, yeah, you know, I know it, it. So you discipline them based on what you know it'll be down the road for them, and I'm so thankful for what God's done in my girls' lives. And But um, when you discipline right, it will hurt you more than it hurts them. You know, I... I because love, there is a tough love at times, and it's not easy. Um, I had somebody recently, they, they, were, they had a family member getting sober, and they, uh, they said, you know, this is a really hard thing for them, and, you know, should I, should I say you're not able to come home unless you go into this place to get sobered up? And I said, absolutely. Boy, it's going to be hard on them. I said, I said, you guys be united. That decade of, of this, holding them in bondage, they're going to be dead within a few years. I've buried too many people. Um, you, need to, you need to be tough, tough love. And they did. They applied it. And now that person's finding victory and freedom and sobriety. And it's the glory of God. It's wonderful. But I can tell you, tough love is not easy, is it? It's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. And, and, and so the blessed man, the path of the blessed man is those who, they... Um, they understand God's presence is fullness of joy. They're willing to do that battle on the inside. They're willing to do what David did. Last couple things. I'm going to wrap this up real quick. Uh, thirdly, the, the consecration of fear. Look at verse 1. Again, 2 Corinthians 7 1. We'll just probably have it up on, the, up on the board here. It says that you perfect holiness in the fear of God. So, you, so you're separating this, and there's a perfecting work that the fear of God does. The, the fear of the Lord produces, it, it, and I like how one, one, one man defined the fear of the Lord. He said, the fear of God is not a shaking fear, but a holy fear, a reverential fear, an awe and ma of God's majesty. It's a, it, it's a f filial fear or family fear of God. That, that, you know, if, if you loved your dad and you respected your dad and mom, there was, a, there was a level of fear that you're like, I wouldn't say that to my mom. I wouldn't tell mom. Like, like if my dad said, hey, take out the trash, I'd say, do what? Y'all know what I'm saying? Like, I wouldn't say that to my dad. I would never have said that to my dad. I wouldn't have said that to my mom. Uh, she wore heels, and she has tattooed me before with those things. <laughs> so uh, there, is a, there, is a, there is a type of fear that's, that's not, not, a, not, a, not a getting abused fear. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a, a honoring fear, a respecting fear. And, and it says, uh, the fear of the Lord, perfecting holiness. This is a, perfecting is a present tense verb. It's talking about like it's continual. Uh, it is a process. It's not an arrival in this lifetime. It's a process of perfecting you and holiness is the goal. And so holy, per, fear will, of God will purify your life. Uh, Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil and pride and arrogance in the evil way. Uh, Proverbs 16.6 says, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And, and Romans 3.18 tells us, after it cataloged all the sins of man, it says the reason they continued to sin, it says, because there was no fear of God before their eyes. And so, 
there's got to be a stirring up in your heart of the fear of God. And I can tell you, you'll get the fear of God when you spend time with him, when you spend time in his word, study Psalms 32, Psalm 51, understand God's chastening grace that can bring you where he wants you to be. But don't don't be brought under chastisement unnecessarily. Come under repentance. Uh, I just have to conclude tonight. So number four, there's, there's always so much more. I, that's why we're only doing one verse tonight. So, but the fourth is the culmination of joy and comfort. You know, back in, in 2 Corinthians 7, verse number four, just as a concluding verse there, he says, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. And we're going to cover verse 2 through 16 next time in a, in a, in a run through. Yeah. But uh, we'll see by faith, you know. But, uh, but here Paul says, I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful. That, that, that word exceeding joyful, it's, it's a, it's a uh, compound word in the Greek. It's like hyper um, Huperparesuo is the Greek word. It's like, like joyful on steroids. Like it's only used one other time when it says where sin abounded, grace did like super and above abound. He's like, I am super overjoyed. Like this is an overwhelming joy. Why? Because he dealt with sin. When sin is dealt with on the inside and when sin is dealt with in those people at Corinth, uh, joy and comfort communion with God. You know, you know, um, Psalms 1 verse 1 says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. The first thing the blessed man is known as when Psalms opens up is what he doesn't do. You're blessed when you stop doing these things. But your delight is in the law of the Lord. You, you, you want the culmination of joy and comfort. You get right with God and he will fill you. And so God invites you into his presence tonight to embrace him, to, to be right with him. He wants to walk in us, to be our God. We are his sons and daughters. He's, he, he says, come out from among them and, and be separate, saith the Lord. But the lie of sin comes along and says, I have something better. The, the serpent's still offering the bitter fruit. Eat of this. I know you're in paradise, but your paradise isn't good enough. I have more to offer you. It's, it's the lie of instant gratification. It's, it's, it's credit card living. But the payment comes. Sin desires to yoke you and me to the world, to bind us to sin and to control our lives. Friends, come out and be separate. Not isolation, but separation in a biblical way. And you know how David concluded Psalms 32? Listen to what he says here. This is a man who understood. He said, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, and he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. I can tell you what, you want to go to bed with a good, joyful, comforted spirit? When you're right with God, there is nothing better than laying your head on your pillow and knowing that if you stood before God, you're right with God. Who wants to go to bed and God looks down and says, you're right where I want you to be? But how much peace and joy would you have if you had a million dollars in the bank, you who are living with every luxury you could want, and God says, there's so many things in your life I am not pleased with. You're not where I want you to be. Which life would you rather have? Tonight, the one is offered, and you, can't, you don't pay for that. You can't work for it. You just come and humble yourself, acknowledge your sin, confess it to the Lord, and he is gracious and 
merciful. He will forgive us of our sins. Listen to one last verse, then I'll be done. 1 John 1, 9 says this. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So uh, all of us know we're not perfect, right? So whether it's your seat or at an altar, I would encourage you to do business with God. Let us be a clean people. If God dwells inside of us, he deserves a clean house. Mm -hmm.